Knights, I bid you welcome to your new home. Let us ride to Camelot. We're knights of the round table. We dance where we're able. We do routine to call the scene to put work in back cable. We dine well here in Camelot. We eat ham and jam and spam a lot. We're knights of the round table. Our shows are more than table. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this fifth day of October, two thousand eight. I'm pleased to take this opportunity to welcome all the new listeners to the Corbett Report, who may have found this podcast via our widely published article "Bailout by Stealth" on the recent economic crisis, or this week's edition of our weekly YouTube documentary series "700 Billion Dollars Is Nothing," which so far has accrued over 20,000 views on YouTube. This was also a very exciting week at the Corbett Report, as listeners may have caught my appearance on the Dynamic Duo. With host Kevin Barrett on GCN last Friday. For those of you who missed my appearance on that radio program, if you are listening to this before Tuesday, October seventh, you likely have a chance to download it for free, and the link to that will be up on the homepage CorbettReport.com in the documentation section for this week's episode. If you are listening to this podcast at a later date, you'll have to join GCN Live to gain access to their archives of previous podcasts. Again, a link to that will be available in the documentation section for today's episode. I'd like to let all the new listeners know that there is a documentation list for each and every episode of the Corbett Report podcast, documenting all of the articles, videos, and audio cited and used in each and every podcast. Simply go to the homepage CorbettReport.com and click on the Episodes tab on the left. Under the Current Episode, click the Documentation tab. And you'll find a list sorted by time index with links to all of the source documents cited in today's episode. Finally, I'd like to thank all of those who have written in with their support and their offers to monetarily support the Corbett Report podcast. At the moment, we are not accepting donations for the Corbett Report podcast, as we hope to raise future funds by selling a DVD. Al Qaeda doesn't exist. But I would like to draw my listeners once again to an exciting partnership that we have with GeopoliticalMonitor.com, an excellent source of news and information about geopolitics. Listeners are encouraged to go and check out GeopoliticalMonitor.com and read through some of their situation reports, weekly forecasts, news articles, and backgrounders. And of course, you can check out our monthly updates with Marsha Reed, the managing editor of GeopoliticalMonitor.com, the latest edition of which was put up last week. In order to gain full access to all of the features of the GeopoliticalMonitor.com website, you can sign up for a monthly or yearly subscription. Yearly subscriptions are available for sixty U.S. dollars, but by entering the J Corbett subscription code when you sign up for a yearly subscription, you will not only receive twenty dollars off of the yearly subscription price; a portion of that subscription fee will also go to fund this podcast. It's a win-win situation as you not only get a yearly subscription to an excellent website, but you also help to support the Corbett Report. Again, please check them out at geopoliticalmonitor.com. And now, without further ado, 
It's time for today's real news. Our first real news story this week comes from Infowars.com, October 4th, 2008. Banker bailout bill contains IRS police state provision. Not only is the recently passed banker takeover bill larded up with pork, it also contains dictatorial provisions. In addition to making former Goldman Sachs chairman and current Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson an economic czar, a provision completely at odds with the Constitution, the bill grants police state powers to the IRS. Declan McCullough writes for CNET, The bailout bill also gives the Internal Revenue Service new authority to conduct undercover operations. It would immunize the IRS from a passel of federal laws, including permitting IRS agents to run businesses for an extended sting operation, to open their own personal bank accounts with U.S. tax dollars, and so on. McCullough notes this is nothing new. Beginning in 1988... Under the so-called Anti-Drug Abuse Act, the IRS began functioning as a secret police force, but this authority was temporary and intermittent. In April of this year, Senators Max Baucus and Chuck Grassley began an effort to make this authority permanent. Undercover operations are an integral part of IRS efforts to detect and prove noncompliance. The temporary status of this provision creates uncertainty, as the IRS plans its undercover efforts from year to year, the senators claimed. Earlier this week, the provision was buried in the banker takeover bill and is now law. There's another section of the bailout bill worth noting, McCullough continues. It lets the IRS give information from individual tax returns to any federal law enforcement agency investigating suspected terrorist activity, which can in turn, share it with local and state police. Intelligence agencies such as the CIA and the National Security Agency can also receive that information. Our second story comes from the Montreal Gazette, September 6th, 2008. Are we already dining on clones? Canadians may have been consuming food from clones for years without knowing it, despite a Health Canada ban. That's one of the surprising revelations from documents on cloning from the Canadian Food Inspection Agency obtained under the Access to Information legislation. About 800 cloned dairy cattle produced through an early version of cloning called embryonic cell nuclear transfer and from embryo splitting have been registered in Canada since the 1980s, said a CFIA background paper on cloning written in 2006. The CFIA paper said food from these clones may be sold to Canadian consumers. There is generally no restriction on the marketing of products, byproducts, or the progeny of animal clones that are produced using the embryo splitting technique in Canada or elsewhere, it said. The CFIA paper didn't say whether milk from the cloned cows was indeed sold to consumers. An agency spokesperson didn't respond to a request for comment. Health Canada, however said no food from clones, including embryonic cell nuclear transfer clones, may be sold in the country. It shouldn't be on the market, said Paul Duchesne, a department spokesperson. Our final story this week comes from the Daily Mail, 25th of September 2008. Depression pill 
may damage men's chances of having children. Antidepressants taken by millions of Britons may damage a man's sperm and limit his chances of fatherhood, doctors have warned. Taking paroxetine tablets for just a few weeks can more than double the amount of damage to the DNA and sperm, a study found. IVF doctors said the findings were alarming. But they warned those keen to start a family not to stop taking their antidepressants without speaking to their doctor first, because coming off the treatment could increase the risk of suicide. The researchers from the Cornell Medical Center in New York examined the sperm of 35 healthy men before and after a course of the popular antidepressant paroxetine, which is also known as Seroxat. Superficially, the men's sperm seemed healthy, with the quantity, shape, and ability to move all showing as normal. But closer inspection revealed that the proportion with DNA damage rose from 13.8% to 30.3% after just four weeks, New Scientist magazine reports. Similar levels of damage are known to affect the formation of embryos and their ability to implant in the womb to create a pregnancy. this hall and every person in this land to reach out and join us in a great new adventure to chart a bold new future. As a teenager, I heard John Kennedy's summons to citizenship. And then as a student at Georgetown, I heard that call clarified by a professor named Carol Quigley, who said to us, that America was the greatest nation in history because our people had always believed in two things, that tomorrow can be better than today and that every one of us has a personal moral responsibility to make it so. Welcome to episode 58 of the Corbett Report. Meet Carol Quigley. What you have just heard is young William Jefferson Clinton giving his speech at the 1992 Democratic National Convention in which he accepted the nomination for the Democratic presidential candidacy in the 1992 elections. As we all know, William Clinton went on to win that election and become President of the United States for the next eight years. It seems very touching, and to the general public, probably a point of endearment, that at this, one of the high points of his entire life, Bill Clinton took the time out to thank his university professor, a then obscure historian by the name of Carol Quigley, quietly toiling away at Georgetown University. 
Basic facts about Carol Quigley can be garnered from the usual sources, such as Wikipedia, and it can quickly be determined that Carol Quigley was indeed an historian at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He wrote lengthy, intimidating historical treatises on an otherwise neglected aspect of modern history. Two of the most important of these treatises was the Anglo-American Establishment, from Rhodes to Cliveden, and Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time. Both of these books are available online, and again, please look in the documentation list for this week's episode to find links to both of those books. While none of this sounds particularly startling or interesting, Carol Quigley's books, in fact, proved to be bombshells in the historical community, and have been written about, discussed, and debated ever since their publication. To get a sense of what Quigley was writing about, and why it is so controversial and important, I'll read now a short passage from the preface for The Anglo-American Establishment. Quote, The Rhodes Scholarships, established by the terms of Cecil Rhodes' seventh will, are known to everyone. What is not so widely known is that Rhodes, in five previous wills, left his fortune to form a secret society, which was to devote itself to the preservation and expansion of the British Empire. And what does not seem to be known to anyone is that this secret society was created by Rhodes and his principal trustee, Lord Milner, and continues to exist to this day. To be sure, this secret society is not a childish thing like the Ku Klux Klan, and it does not have any secret robes, secret handclasps, or secret passwords. It does not need any of these, since its members know each other intimately. It probably has no oaths of secrecy, nor any formal procedure of initiation. It does, however, exist, and holds secret meetings, over which the senior member present presides. At various times since 1891, these meetings have been presided over by Rhodes, Lord Milner, Lord Selburne, Sir Patrick Duncan, Field Marshal Jan Smuts, Lord Lothian, and Lord Brand. They have been held in all the British dominions, starting in South Africa about 1903, in various places in London, chiefly 175 Piccadilly, at various colleges at Oxford, chiefly All Souls, and at many English country houses, such as Tring Park, Blickling Hall, Cliveden, and others. This society has been known at various times as Milner's Kindergarten, as the Round Table Group, as the Rhodes Crowd, as the Times Crowd, as the All Souls Group, and as the Cliveden Set. All of these terms are unsatisfactory, for one reason or another, and I have chosen to call it the Milner Group. Those persons who have used the other terms, or heard them used, have not generally been aware that all these various terms referred to the same group. It is not easy for an outsider to write the history of a secret group of this kind, but since no insider is going to do it, an outsider must attempt it. It should be done, for this group is, as I shall show, one of the most important historical facts of the 20th century. Indeed, the group is of such significance that evidence of its existence is not hard to find, if one knows where to look. This evidence I have sought to point out without overly burdening this volume with footnotes and bibliographical references. While such evidence of scholarship are kept at a minimum, I believe I have given the source of every fact which I mention. 
Some of these facts came to me from sources which I am not permitted to name, and I have mentioned them only where I can produce documentary evidence available to everyone. Nevertheless, it would have been very difficult to write this book if I had not received a certain amount of assistance of a personal nature from persons close to the group. For obvious reasons, I cannot reveal the names of such persons, so I have not made reference to any information derived from them unless it was information readily available from other sources. End quote. Well, for those who understand their history, what this otherwise mainline professor of history has just stated is rather extraordinary. What he proposes in that preface, and indeed throughout the Anglo-American establishment and tragedy and hope, is nothing less than a conspiratorial view of history, the idea that a secret society, founded by Cecil Rhodes, administered by Lord Milner, and continued on well into the 20th century, affected international relations in ways that historians had not hitherto taken into account. It's difficult to put into perspective just how important and how against the grain of traditional historical scholarship Professor Quigley's books were, but an indication of the unorthodox nature of this material can be gained at looking at the secrecy with which he treats his material. Not only does he call the group that he is writing about a secret society, he also openly admits that the inside sources of his information could not be made public. If all of this seems extremely secretive for a mainline professor of history at Georgetown University, who served as a consultant to the U.S. Department of Defense and the U.S. Navy, then it probably is. But just as a further illustration of this point, let's listen to some highlights of an interview that the extremely reclusive Professor Quigley gave in 1974, in which his insistence on secrecy and discretion might be seen as a little bit odd for an otherwise staid professor of history. You see, now here's what happened, and I don't know whether we want to get this on tape, but I'll put it on tape, but look, you've got to be discreet. Sure. sure. You know, you have to protect my future. Sure. As well as your own. Sure. All right. So I better stop talking because, you see, this gets into okay. all kinds of things. Now, and he had got this. And, uh, uh, you want to check And so the plot thickens. Evidently there are things about this group and his sources of information that Professor Quigley would not like to, or was not able to, discuss. Again, this is extremely interesting, but let's take a look at what Professor Quigley actually could discuss about this group which he wrote about. Let's listen to Professor Quigley in his own words from that same interview discussing this secret society which had such a profound influence on 20th century events. The group that I'm writing about was originally, in my mind, the group established secretly by Lord Milner in 1989 called the Round Table Group, which still publishes a quarterly magazine called the Round Table in London, which is one of the world's best sources of international relations information since 1910. The first editor of it was Lord Lothian, at that time Philip Carr, K-E-R-R, and uh, nobody knew this really for years. I got to know things, and I investigated that group, you see? Mm -hmm. Now, how I found it is very interesting. I noticed that prominent people in English life had Fellow of All Souls College. 
uh, Lord Halifax, who was the uh, Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, and then they made him ambassador to America. When they take the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs and makes him ambassador to Washington, which most people would consider a downward step, it shows how important they consider Washington's support would be in World War II, you see? Mm -hmm. uh, he's a fellow of all souls. The fellow who summoned Neville Ch Ch Chamberlain in the 10th of May, 1940, and said, for God's sake, go, was uh, Leo Amory. All right, he was a sidekick the chief lieutenant, political lieutenant of Lord Milner, you see. Mm -hmm. He was a fellow of all souls. And so I decided I would study all souls. This is purely historical. I got the names of all people who had been fellows of all souls since 1899 to whenever I was doing it, which would be about 1947. And there were 149 of them. I discovered most of them were fellows for only seven years, which is the, the regular appointment. It's seven years. But some of them were for 55 years fellows of all souls. A man named Dougal Malcolm, who was the head of the British South Africa Company, which is what Rhodesia, you see. And he was for 55 years. I discovered that Lord Brand, who had been with Miller in South Africa, was for years, and he was the head of Lazar Brothers Bankers in London. And I discovered that Leo Amory was for years, and so forth. And above all, I discovered a man named Lionel Curtis who had no right whatever to be a fellow of all souls. You get to be a fellow of all souls either because you are a very prominent person and as an honorary thing you will become an honorary fellow for seven years, or because you are an outstanding scholar and you get it by competitive examination when you graduate. That's how Lord Halifax got it. His name was uh, Charles Wood in 1903 when he graduated from... Uh, Oxford. He took a competitive examination and got it, but he's kept it. Now, I discovered he kept it because he went immediately to South Africa and met the kindergarten, which was the group of people that were running South Africa for Lord Milner, you see. They were called kindergarten because they were all young kids, you see. Now, these are the ones who remain forever after, fellows of all sorts, or in Lionel Curtis's case, he's the man who said, We've got to change the name from British Empire to Commonwealth of Nations. And the reason is they had been students of Alfred Zimmern, who wrote a book in 1909 called The Greek Commonwealth, describing ancient Greece, you see? Mm -hmm. And who was the man who made Arnold Toynbee a great classical scholar, do you see, and brought him into international affairs. Now, I knew none of this. Mm -hmm. All I knew is that here, were, here was a fellow, Lionel Curtis, who was such a poor student, it took him 15 years to get his degree, and then he got it about the lowest pass degree or something that you could ever get. Mm. And, he, was a, and nobody knew it. Nobody had ever heard of him. Right. But he was furthermore, a company. I later discovered, furthermore, he was Lord Halifax's roommate at All Souls for years. Mm. And then I discovered this fella is behind everything that's going on. My own Curtis, you see? Now, I don't think we should talk too much about this. Well, no, I... Seriously. All right. All right. But having discovered that, I met Alfred Zimmerman. He came here to give a speech. And I said, isn't it funny that, that all souls... He says, that's the roundtable group. 
I had never heard of them. That sure as hell didn't lie. I knew it. They'd been around since 99 and published this magazine since 1910, and this is 1947. Yeah. And I said, what is the round table going? He named them, who they were. And he says, I was a member of them for 10 years, from 1913, and they, they added, they brought me in and invited me because I was in the Workers' Education Alliance. This was extension programs, night courses, summer courses for workers, Workers' Education Alliance. And he said, uh, that's why they brought me into it, and I was for 10 years, and he says, I resigned in 1923 because they were determined to build up Germany against France. He says, I wouldn't stand for it, so I resigned. Now, when I met Lord Brand later and asked him about this, he had never seen about a resignation. Now, and so I better stop talking because, you see, this gets into okay. all kinds of things. Now, this is... I knew the Roundtable group was very influential. I knew that they were the real founders of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, and I knew they were the, all the stuff that's in print, that they were the real founders of the Institute of Pacific Relations. I knew that they were the godfathers of the uh, Council of Foreign Relations here. Mm -hmm. I knew that, for example, you know the big study of history, many volumes of uh, Anatoly me. Mm -hmm. All right, I knew the manuscripts of that were stored in the Council of Foreign Relations during the war so they wouldn't be destroyed by German bombing, do you see? Mm. And so forth. And so forth. So I began to put these things together and discovered that this group was working for the following things. They were a secret group. They were working to federate the English-speaking world. Mm -hmm. The English-speaking world. Mm -hmm. They were closely linked to international bankers. Uh, they were working to establish a world, what I call a three-power world. And that three-power world was the Atlantic bloc of England and the Commonwealth and the United States, Germany, Hitler's Germany, Soviet Russia, the three-power world. Now, in that interview, Professor Quigley does not talk about his material as if it were bombshell information, and certainly not as if it was a major revision of all mainline academic history up until that point. But there is no doubt that that's exactly what it was, a major revision of all currently accepted history. To get a better handle on this subject, let's listen to a speech made by the excellent speaker G. Edward Griffin, whom we've featured on previous editions of the Corbett Report podcast. In a speech made in Austin, Texas in April of this year, G. Edward Griffin discussed Carol Quigley and his unorthodox view of history. The speech was organized by the Project for a New American Citizen, a student activist group based at the University of Texas, which can be found at pnacitizen.org. Let's listen to some highlights from G. Edward Griffin's speech, which was entitled The Quigley Formula, a conspiratorial view of history by the conspirators themselves. Now, I'm going to summarize the story that uh, Carol Quigley presented in his two books. I'm going to paraphrase it in my own words, and I'm going to be as careful as I can not to exaggerate or to leave anything out that's important. And then when I'm all done, I'm, I'm going to go back to Quigley himself and read excerpts to illustrate that I have not distorted what he has said. 
but it's spread over so many pages that you have to bring it together and condense it. And that's going to be my mission now. See if I can do that. And here's the story. It was at the end of the 19th century that a secret society was formed in England by Cecil Rhodes. Now, Cecil Rhodes is well known in history for being one of the wealthiest men in the world. He was the top political figure in South Africa uh, in prior toward the end of the 19th century. He had amassed a tremendous fortune because he had acquired control of the diamond mines and the mineral deposits, primarily the oil, de uh, the uh, gold deposits in South Africa. He had a monopoly over them, personal monopoly. You can imagine the amount of wealth untold. I don't think anybody ever knew what it was or could count it. It was very private wealth. But it was perhaps one of the greatest, if not the greatest, fortunes of the world, certainly ranking up there with that of Rothschild. What people don't know is that when Cecil Rhodes died, none of that vast fortune went to his heirs. It was all transmitted and used for the purpose of creating a secret society. And the purpose of the secret society, according to Cecil Rhodes' wills, and there were several of them, was to create an organization that would literally control the world from behind the scenes using measures and strategies and tactics so that the rulers would never be seen. They would operate behind the scenes. They would put forth political figures and commentators and front men who would be viewed by the population as the, as the movers and shakers of society they really would be frontmen. They would be ruled from behind the scenes by the members of this secret society. And uh, <clears throat> this was uh, all outlined in five wills that Cecil Rhodes left. We know a little bit about one of those wills. It has made it into mainstream uh, knowledge because it was used to create the Rhodes Scholarship. By the way, President uh, Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar. Should not be a surprise to anyone. But the Rhodes Scholarships are known. And we think that just the means by which this uh, uh, benefactor, Cecil Rhodes, left a large amount of money so that uh, worthy students could get a good education. And it turns out that's not it at all. The Rhodes Scholarship was designed to be more or less a recruiting and training uh, arm of the secret society. To look for just those Young men, originally young men now, including women, who had the right characteristics, the right mindset, right worldview, who would be recruited into this uh, hierarchy and could be placed into important positions uh, in the secret society. Um, and we know about this because these wills have now been written about. I'll be quoting one of the men shortly. His name is William Stead. He was the executor of, of uh, Cecil Rhodes' estate, and he wrote a book that it revealed a great deal of information about these otherwise secret wills. Uh, this organization not only was formed at the uh, turn of the century, or the end of the 19th century, but it still exists today, and in fact has been a major historical force in all world affairs since the end of World War I. Okay. The goal of this group originally was to export the British model, the British culture, the British Empire. Cecil felt that the, 
that the British had the finest uh, legal system, the finest language, the finest culture, uh, the finest government in the world. And it was, he felt, their obligation, noblesse noblesse, to rule the world so that they could spread this, this wonderful culture to the rest of the world. So the ignorant masses of the world could benefit from what they had developed in England. That was his original concept. And he wanted to, uh, to uh, do it in such a way that there would be very little, if any, resentment on the parts of the populations around the world who were being benefited by this uh, transfusion. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons for the necessity of keeping everything secret. Um, now, that evolved very quickly after Cecil Rhodes' death. It became clear that they weren't going to quite accomplish the uh, spread of the British Empire in that fashion. And by the time they took in their American partners from the United States, people like uh, the Rockefellers and so forth, this goal uh, rapidly changed away from spreading the British Empire, the British culture, to creating what they called a new world order, which was a world government ruled from behind the scenes by the secret society, but based on the model of collectivism. Now, <clears throat> the methods, very important to understand the method by which they hoped to accomplish this. Not to be done by guns, not to be done by invading armies, it was to be done through infiltration of the power centers of society. It was to be done not by large numbers of people, but a very small group of people in the secret society who would consciously go into the power centers of society, move to the top, and lead the masses through the organizations to which they belong. The political parties, the government agencies, church organizations, labor unions, media centers, corporations, you name it. You know, people have a herd instinct. We move together. We flock together. We have leaders. We have opinion leaders. And the masses are always flocking around their leaders. And so Cecil Rhodes and his uh, companions knew this, that they were very wise to choose a strategy which said, we don't need to control the masses one by one. All we need to do is capture control of the organizations of the masses. And in that fashion, we can lead with extremely small numbers behind the scene. That is the method by which they have been accomplishing their goal. Now, the structure, very interesting. This is where it really gets off the wall. The structure that they chose was modeled directly after Adam Weishaupt's uh, Illuminati, of all things. Now, we're told today that the Illuminati doesn't exist. And I don't know whether it does or not. If it does, it may or may not have historical continuity back to the original, which was formed in 1776 uh, in, uh, by Adam Weishaupt. You know, it was supposedly disbanded in Bavaria a few years later. The Bavarian police uh, raided the home of one of the high dignitaries of the Illuminati, and they captured all of the personal papers written by the dignitaries and by Adam Weishaupt. And these are now, I believe, in the uh, London Museum or the London Library, the uh, British Library. And so uh, the researcher can go there and read these things, and I've read copies of them. And I was just amazed when I was reading through Cecil Rhodes' information to find out that Cecil Rhodes had copied the structure that Adam Weishaupt had created for his Illuminati. Now, does that mean there's a connection? No. It just means that obviously, I think it's obvious that uh, Cecil Rhodes had read the same papers I did and said to himself, this is a good idea. But what is this structure? 
Weissop called it rings within rings within rings. And what he meant by that was that the people involved in this uh, secret group were not to be aware that they were being directed by a smaller group, a smaller ring inside the outer ring. And he said that, for example, the, the leaders of a group should be the, the founder and maybe one or two of the brain trust. They would be at the, the hardcore center, perhaps the all-seeing eye, you might say. But around them, they would, they would build a, a slightly larger group of people of maybe 80 or 100 people or 200 people who would think that they were the whole enchilada. They would not know that there were three running the show from the inside, and they were not supposed to know. Maybe eventually some of the, of the uh, uh, more astute ones would be allowed to know that, and they might be recruited into the center, but most of them would not ever know in their whole lifetime. Then that group would create around itself another ring, much larger in number, perhaps several thousand people. And they would think that they were the whole show, too not realizing that there were a smaller group on the inside controlling them. And finally, that larger ring would create another one which would reach out into mass organizations with truly large numbers of people. And for sure, most of those people would never dream in their wildest imagination that their whole structure was being directed from ranked within ranked within ring. And that is exactly the formula that Cecil Rhodes chose. Um, now, the result of this strategy and these goals is that this organization remains invisible. The inner circle of this very hard-to-see group, they call themselves the Society of the Elect. And there again, that phrase is taken directly from Adam Weissa. Amazing. Now, originally that was Cecil Rhodes and a brain trust from British banking circles and politics. As I mentioned a moment ago, that center of gravity shifted away after Cecil Rhodes' death to the Rockefeller Group. And uh, now it has centers of very strong influence in such groups as Bilderberg Group, the Trilateral Commission, and that sort of thing. And uh, it also shows up in some of the financial circles, the uh, financial meetings, the G7 meetings, G6 meetings, that take place around the world. And the goal has shifted, as I mentioned, away from the center of the British Empire to the new world order based on the model of collectivism. The secondary rings around this inner society of the elect, they call roundtables. That's their name for them. And these exist in the United States, Great Britain, and all of the former British dependencies. This is the outer ring. This is one more ring out. Now, the tertiary rings around the round tables were formed very quickly, and they were called, um, in, in Britain and uh, the former uh, British dependencies, they were called the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Okay? In the United States, they didn't call it that, I guess because they figured Americans didn't care for the word royal. So they didn't use that name. In the United States, they called it the Council on Foreign Relations, or the CFR. And ladies and gentlemen, after a hundred years of penetration into the power centers of society in America, the Rhodesians, this network 
now is very close to the final achievement of its goal of total domination of government and society, politics, economics, at least in the Western world. Rings within rings within rings? The Council on Foreign Relations as the real rulers of the United States? Well, this just sounds like crazy conspiracy talk. Uh, you and your wife are in the globalist CFR, which is the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, and um, I'd like to know if that is true. Well, first of all, uh, I'm, I'm not... Uh, the, the Council on Foreign Relations, I don't know if I'm an official member. I, I've spoken there before. Uh, it still is an impressive and important institution in this country as it's been since the early days of uh, uh, David Rockefeller and uh, a number of his predecessors, which really in many respects formulated the foreign policy of this country. Rockefeller's influence also extends to the current administration. He was chairman emeritus of the CFR when Vice President Dick Cheney once served as a director, a relationship that Cheney concealed during his congressional career. It's good to be back at the Council on Foreign Relations. As uh, Pete mentioned, I've been a member for a long time and was actually a director for some period of time. I never mentioned that when I was campaigning for re-election back home in Wyoming. <laughs> Oh, well, so there may be something to this. Well, let's take an examination of some of the writings of Carol Quigley. I read now some selected bombshell quotes from Professor Quigley's work, Tragedy and Hope, which again can be found online in its entirety, and which I suggest my listeners check out by going to CorbettReport.com and clicking on the link in the documentation section. The powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion by the central banks of the world acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent private meetings and conferences. The apex of the system was to be the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, a private bank owned and controlled by the world's central banks, which were themselves private corporations. Each central bank, in the hands of men like Montague Norman of the Bank of England, Benjamin Strong of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, Charles Rist of the Bank of France, and Yalmar Schacht of the Reichsbank, sought to dominate its government by its ability to control treasury loans, to manipulate foreign exchanges, to influence the level of economic activity in the country, and to influence cooperative politicians by subsequent economic rewards in the business world. End quote. Continuing, quote, There does exist, and has existed for a generation, an international Anglophile network which operates, to some extent, in the way the right believes the Communists act. In fact, this network, which we may identify as the roundtable groups, has no aversion to cooperating with the Communists or any other groups, and frequently does so. 
I know of the operations of the network because I have studied it for 20 years and was permitted for two years in the early 1960s to examine its papers and secret records. I have no aversion to it or to most of its aims and have, for much of my life, been close to it and to many of its instruments. I have objected, both in the past and recently, to a few of its policies, notably to its belief that England was an Atlantic rather than a European power and must be allied or even federated with the United States and must remain isolated from Europe. But in general, my chief difference of opinion is that it wishes to remain unknown, and I believe its role in history is significant enough to be known. End quote. Quote, From 1884 to about 1915, the members of this group worked valiantly to extend the British Empire and to organize it in a federal system. They were constantly harping on the lessons to be learned from the failure of the American Revolution and the success of the Canadian Federation of 1867, and hoped to federate the various parts of the empire as seemed feasible, then confederate the whole of it with the United Kingdom into a single organization. They also hoped to bring the United States into this organization to whatever degree was possible. Stead was able to get Rhodes to accept, in principle, a solution which might have made Washington the capital of the whole organization, or allow parts of the empire to become states of the American Union. The varied character of the British imperial possessions, the backwardness of many of the native peoples involved, the independence of many of the white colonists overseas, and the growing international tension which culminated in the First World War made it impossible to carry out the plan for imperial federation, although the five colonies in Australia were joined into the Commonwealth of Australia in 1901, and the four colonies in South Africa were joined into the Union of South Africa in 1910. End quote. Continuing, quote, The chief problem of the Eastern establishment for a long time has been how to make the two congressional parties more national and international. The argument that the two parties should represent opposed ideals and policies, one perhaps of the right and the other of the left, is, to the Eastern establishment, a foolish idea acceptable only to doctrinaire and academic thinkers. Instead, they believe that the two parties should be almost identical, so that they can hold elections without leading to any profound or extensive shifts in policy. End quote. Again, keep in mind this is not some fringe historian, but a very important and influential professor of history at Georgetown University, who was name-checked by none other than Bill Clinton as his mentor when Bill Clinton accepted the Democratic presidential candidacy. What is being admitted here is nothing less than the existence of a system of political and economic control that extends throughout the known world into the realms of geopolitics and international relations, administered through a group of shadowy round-table groups hiding behind front organizations. The core of their power comes from their financial control over almost every nation-state in the world a control that itself derives from the private ownership of the private central banks. As Carol Quigley repeatedly notes in his writings, their aim and purpose is to effect nothing less than a one-world government administered from behind the scenes by these financial interests. How this relates to current events is now not difficult to piece together, 
And a good place to start might be an article released by the Corbett Report on the 21st of July, 2008, headlined Breaking the Economy in Order to Fix It, How and Why the Elite Are Engineering the Next Depression. This article reads, quote, There's a corollary to the old adage, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That is, if you want to fix something, you'd better break it first. The logic is simple enough for a child to understand, yet most adults fail to grasp it. Take the current financial meltdown which is threatening to bring down the American empire and destabilize the world economy. That it has been created by the greed and avarice of those at the top of the financial pyramid is easy enough to demonstrate. Bubbles Greenspan, ex-chairman of the Federal Reserve, pretended to save the economy after the popping of the dot-com bubble by lowering the prime lending rate to 1% thus creating the housing bubble. Financial investors, sensing opportunity, began making risky loans to unsuitable candidates and dressing these loans up as AAA securities through financial wizardry. Rating agencies and regulators looked the other way. Finally, when the loans started to default and the bubble began to burst, helicopter Ben Bernanke, the current Fed chairman, lived up to his moniker by dropping tens of billions of Federal Reserve funny money liquidity onto Wall Street from his metaphorical Fed helicopter. As a result, the dollar continues to devalue at an ever-increasing rate, leading to price rises on imports across the board, including, of course, oil. These facts are easily understood. What is less easily understood is that the crisis itself a perfectly predictable result of the reckless lending habits of the mortgage lenders and the loose monetary policy of the Fed, is in fact intended to bring about a situation which could only be fixed by centralizing power in the hands of the bankers who have created the problem in the first place. The concept itself is perfectly simple. In order to justify bringing in a new system, the old system must be destroyed. The confusion sets in, however, because the international financial oligarchs puppeteering the system have used a smokescreen of national central banks like the Federal Reserve in the U.S. and the Bank of England in the U.K. to perpetuate the false appearance of a system of disconnected competing national interests. The ultra-wealthy financiers of one country, according to this myth, have nothing in common with the ultra-wealthy financiers of another. When it is revealed that these national central banks are in fact privately owned by the same few ultra-wealthy financiers, it becomes clear that the current economic system is run by a network of elites connected across national borders by their common interest in expanding their own wealth and power. From this perspective, it is easy to understand that the implosion of the current national economic order in favor of an international order is actually in the best interests of those elite string pullers who are in the position to pull the plug on the current system. It's important to note that this plan is much larger than the Federal Reserve as a national central bank, much older than the subprime mortgage fiasco, and involves much higher level figures than Bubbles and Helicopter Ben, both of whom received their marching orders at elite confabs like Bilderberg, with Greenspan having the dubious distinction of having attended the Bohemian Grove. Although the general public has been programmed to laugh at the very idea of an international elite, let alone an elite that would use their power and influence to expand their own wealth and consolidate their control, their plans are a matter of public record. A clear example of this plan comes from H.G. Wells, writing in the early 1900s. Although today known for his sci-fi works describing in glowing terms the creation of a world stage run by technocrats, 
In his own time, Wells was known as a political thinker, even drafting a document that would be adopted by the UN as their Universal Declaration of Human Rights. In his 1931 book, What Are We to Do With Our Lives?, later revised under the provocative title The Open Conspiracy, Wells wrote at length about the ways the wealthy elite and technocratic caste were conspiring to engineer a system of global control. Writing of the importance of an international financial system in implementing this self-styled open conspiracy, Wells notes, The necessary maintenance of a money system by a central world authority upon a basis that will make money keep faith with the worker who earns it, and represent from first to last for him the value in staple commodities he was given to understand it was to have, and if we conceive credit adequately controlled in the general interest by a socialized world banking organization, we shall have defined the entire realm from which individual property and unrestricted individual enterprise have been excluded. In this passage, Wells brazenly asserts that all the elite are asking for is control over the world money supply and iron fist control over the international issuance of credit. Other than that, people would be free to act as they please in the coming world state. Perhaps he was relying on his reader's ignorance of Mayor Amschel Rothschild's famous dictum, Give me control over a nation's currency, and I care not who makes its laws. The utter contempt for the democratic process which Rothschild displayed in that quote is also evident in a famous quotation from James Paul Warburg, an American banker and presidential advisor. Speaking to the United States Senate Committee on Foreign Relations in 1950, he threatened, We shall have world government, whether or not we like it. The question is only whether world government will be achieved by consent or by conquest. Nor are such brazenly tyrannical musings by financial oligarchs limited to the distant past. As recently as 1991, David Rockefeller, former head of Chase Manhattan Bank and third-generation member of the infamous Rockefeller dynasty, uttered the following chilling words at the 1991 Bilderberg Gathering in Baden-Baden, Germany. The world is now more sophisticated and prepared to march towards a world government. The supranational sovereignty of an intellectual elite and world bankers is surely preferable to the national autodetermination practiced in past centuries. The game plan of the ultra-elite, those select few who hold the purse strings of entire nations in their hands, has not changed in centuries. They continue to push for the formation of world government as a way to formalize their control over the supposedly free nations of the world and expand their already incalculable wealth. Is it any surprise, then, that we see Timothy Geithner, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, coming out the very day after attending Bilderberg 2008, proposing the elite solution to the current financial crisis? the seeding of powers from the national central banks into a strengthened BIS, International Central Bank, that, exactly as H.G. Wells had wished, would consolidate control of the money supply and the power to issue credit in the hands of the international bankers. The simplicity of the entire plan is laid bare in a simple observation. The financiers used Bilderberg minions like Greenspan and Bernanke to create the problem, now they send Bilderberg emissaries like Geithner to propose their solution of increased control. They broke the economy, and unless we expose this operation for the transparent scam that it is, they're going to fix it. A child would understand. End quote. For those who doubt the relevance of this to what Professor Quigley was writing about, 
You might note that he figures the Warburg family as one of the prominent banking families and definitely part of the roundtable groups and their operations in the United States. So it's clear from Quigley's writings that the bankers did indeed want to set up the One World Government, in which their policies were dictates to be followed by the individual governments that comprised the regional states of the world government. And of course, all of that power rests on economic control, a control which they are beginning to wield and beginning to wield openly, as the U.S. economy collapses in this pre-engineered depression. Now once again, they can't help but tip their hand as the depression starts to take hold, and as they have to make their move to gain control, which is why we saw in the original three-page draft of the bailout bill that infamous wording in Section 8, which would have effectively made Henry Paulson a dictator openly. Or the article from last week's Real News section from Infowars.net on September 26, 2008, former Kissinger policy planner, CFR member, calls for new global monetary authority. We are only now beginning to discover what Professor Quigley was writing about in the mid-20th century and what Bill Clinton was learning about when he was going to university. Yes, as G. Edward Griffin pointed out in that speech in Austin, Bill Clinton, the Rhodes Scholar, was merely tipping his hat to those in the know when he name-checked Carol Quigley at his presidential candidacy acceptance speech. The layers of the plot are deep, and Professor Quigley mined many of them for us many years ago. Once again, we live in an incredible age when all of this information is at our fingertips and available right now on the internet. Don't let the opportunity slip through your hands. Please, by all means, go and read Tragedy and Hope. Go and read the Anglo-American establishment and learn about the conspiratorial history of the United States and indeed the world as told by the conspirators themselves. Of course, Carol Quigley did not believe himself to be one of the conspirators, and he likely was not, as evidenced by the fact that Professor Quigley was utterly perplexed that Macmillan, his publisher, decided not to print a second edition of Tragedy and Hope, despite the successful first print selling out rather quickly. Also, despite it being in his contract that if a second edition was not to be printed, that the plates from the original edition would be returned to him, the plates of that edition were in fact destroyed. Was Professor Quigley really perplexed by this, considering he himself realized that giving this information out was not something that the secret society he was attempting to expose wanted? When pressed on these types of issues, what kind of responses did he give? Well, something like this one. This conspiracy theory of history is appealing because well, it's so it, so, so it explains everything that is unexplainable. And, going wrong. and if you raise one point that doesn't fit, they say, ah, see how clever the conspiracy is. Yes, now, that they've I want to show you well. something. This is what they start. They start by showing you a $1 bill. Mm -hmm. And they say, why is there a, a pyramid with an eye over it? Do you see? Mm -hmm. This is the symbol of the secret society. Now, if you ask people, any the secret society, according to them, there's only one, you see. That's right. right. Now, the secret society is the spawn of generations. Yes, yes. Now, if you ask the United States government why it is there, mm -hmm. 
they have great difficulty explaining. And they mostly come up with, it's, a, it's the Masons, Masonic symbol. But then you say, why should the Masonic symbol be on the American dollar bill? And they have no explanation. So there is something. If you look at this monument in Alexandria to Washington, it is the pyramid. You see, now there's no, the eye over it is the light. You see. So uh, I could go further into this, but won't have to, because this symbol is at least uh, 6,000 years old. And I can give you the history of the 4,000 B.C. It has nothing to do with the Masons. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe the Masons adopted it, you see. Mm -hmm. but, it has not, but I will not go into that. That's a totally different story. Once again, there are many layers to this story, and this is just one of them. I suggest you go out there and do the research for yourself. Arm yourself with the knowledge that has been provided to you. That's it for this week. Thank you for joining me. And join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. They have not lost out, they simply don't want any attention. They don't want to draw yeah. the, well, the ire of the people.